Now, who among us doesn't love a good story? We all love a good story. So from the child that is sitting on their parent's knee to someone sitting in a Sunday school class or maybe even you before me this morning as you're listening to a sermon, you love a good story. A good story has a way of disarming us. It has a way of breaking down our defenses and getting us ready for the punchline, if there is a good punchline to the story. And so on this Palm Sunday morning, we'll hear a story that Jesus told over 2,000 years ago, a story about a vineyard and a stone. He told it to a crowd of people who were listening, and these people within a few days would be their voices would be heard among those who were saying, crucify him, crucify him. So I'm going to invite you this morning to listen not only to the story, but to its punchline as well. Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 18. Jesus himself telling this story. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long time, a long while, I'm sorry. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat him and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Now there's nothing more compelling than the grace of the landlord. The grace of the landlord. Jesus opens this story that we just read this morning by referring to a vineyard which its owner let out to tenants, expecting them to take care of it while he went on a journey, a long journey. The landlord's only expectation of these tenants was that when he returned at the time of harvest, he would receive some of the grapes or the fruit from the vineyard. Now, that is hardly unreasonable, is it? If you are a tenant and you are renting something, maybe an apartment or a piece of property from your uh, landlord, it is not unreasonable for that landlord to expect that at the end of the month, or maybe at the end of the year, depending on however long your lease or renting agreement is, that they would receive something in exchange for your use of their property. Maybe that would be money. 
So that's not unreasonable. Except that this story is not really a true story. It's not a real story about a landlord and tenants. It is a made-up story. It has a deeper meaning than appears on the surface. When Jesus used the term vineyard, his audience knew exactly what he was referring to. He was speaking about the people of Israel and their refusal over hundreds of years to repent of their ways and to return to God. Now, Jesus may well have been quoting uh, from this passage from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, which tells us a similar story. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. The prophet writes, Let me sing for my beloved my, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a, vi a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its walls, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that there rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are its pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Now you can't miss the grace and patience of the landlord in this passage. He invested years of digging the, this vineyard, clearing it of stones, planting it with choice vines, pruning them of dead branches, building a watchtower in it, hewing out a wine vat from the rock. And then he waited. He waited patiently, and then he waited some more, and then he waited even longer. He waited for there to be justice between neighbor and neighbor. He waited for there to be righteousness or right living that conformed to God's standards and God's ways. He waited for there to be a turning away from idolatry and a returning to the worship of the one true God. And then he waited. And then he waited some more. And then he sent three different sets of servants. I don't know the significance of the three different sets, but I just know that the passage tells us he sent three different sets of servants. Now, this was over the course of hundreds and hundreds of years. He sent them to call forth from these people the fruit of repentance. Repentance. He sent this message through the lips of one of his servants, a servant named Isaiah. 
And Isaiah says to the people, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. That was his message, the message of the first servant. Many years later, after these tenants refused to acknowledge the message that God had sent, and even after they became more rebellious, the landlord sent a similar message through the lips of a second servant, Jeremiah. In the book of Lamentations, chapter 3, verses 40 to 42, the prophet says, Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven and say, We have transgressed and rebelled. Then years later, maybe hundreds of years later, after these tenants became even more unfaithful and even more rebellious and wicked, the landlord sent another message by the, a prophet named Zechariah, chapter 1 and verse 4. And he said this to God's people, Do not let, I'm sorry, do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me. Don't be like them, this prophet says. And so instead of receiving the fruit that he expected, the landlord's servants were beaten, they were insulted, wounded, sent away empty-handed, prompting the landowner to ask rhetorically, what more, what more could I have done? What more could I have done that I have not already done for these people in my vineyard? Why is it that when I expected to receive grapes, all I got was sour grapes? Why is it that when I looked for justice, all I saw was more and more injustice and more and more bloodshed? Why is, that, why is it that when I looked for righteousness, all I saw was rebellion, indecency, perversion, people calling evil good and good evil? God would say, were it not for my mercy, I would have destroyed them all. But I am a God of mercy and steadfast love and compassion. Now, obviously, the vineyard, in, the vineyard owner in Jesus' story is God. I'm sure that we all recognize that. After thousands of years of sending prophet after prophet and preacher after preacher with message after message, with warning after warning, calling people to repentance, and to turn to him with all of their hearts, God decided that he was going to try one last option. One last option. He would send them his only son. At the very least, these people would recognize who he was and they would respect him for who he was. And he would fear better than the other servants, than the three servants that had gone before him. Now, if that is not grace, I don't know what else is grace. The patience and the long-suffering of God. I'm told that a man was examining some real estate which he intended to buy and um, the owners of that uh, real estate became a little bit concerned because on the piece of, of, um, on the piece of property was, a, was a, a building, and the building was not in very good shape. 
And so they figured that maybe the reason why this guy is delaying a little bit is because maybe the building is not quite what it should be. And so the owners decided or they assured him that they would fix up the building before they actually uh, sold it at the price that they had agreed on. To which the prospective buyer says, forget it. I don't want the building. I want the site. In other words, you don't have any fixing up to do. God does not expect you to fix up anything. His grace meets us exactly where we are at. He doesn't want us to try to fix ourselves up first. He just wants us to offer ourselves to him in repentance and true worship. Secondly, there's nothing more outrageous than the cruelty of his tenants. The cruelty of his tenants. The tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed, and he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed, and he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. When the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now, although we understand the symbolism of this story very well, we understand that it's a story that represents something else. It is still very shocking to us. We find it shocking. How wicked can you be to occupy the landowner's vineyard, which he worked so long and hard to establish, to harvest it year after year and reap its benefits at his expense, to refuse to give him a portion of the proceeds from it, to beat, disrespect, and wound his servants, sending them back to him empty-handed, and on top of that, to kill his beloved son and throw him out of the vineyard to which he was the heir. How wicked can people be to do all that? Now, I believe that even the most callous among us finds that to be shocking. That's not how you treat people. It's wicked. Now, that is exactly how shocking sin is. And that is how clever a storyteller Jesus is. Because he tells a masterful story of how rebellious and wicked we can be. Now, these people to which Jesus was telling the story, they had rejected and beaten and stoned and jailed the prophets of God who came to them year after year, time after time, preaching about their need for repentance and their need to turn back to God from their sins. And they had refused to turn to God from their wicked ways. They had failed to produce the fruits of righteousness and justice and love and compassion that God was looking for. And they were about to kill the very Son of God and throw his body out of the city. Now, the only thing that is more outrageous and shocking than that is what people are doing today. 
today. God's messengers are sent time after time, Sunday after Sunday, with message after message to preach to God's people and to all people that they should humble themselves and pray and seek God's face and turn from their wicked ways. But I don't need to read for you this morning the long list, the long list of wicked things that people continue to do as they reject the very God who created them and gave them breath. Let's just say that it is shocking. It is shocking. Thirdly and finally, there is nothing more fearsome than the judgment of our landlord. Jesus asked this question rhetorically. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Now, if you're a landlord, you realize that you always have the last word, don't you? As long as you own that building, you have the last word as to who stays and who goes. If you fail to pay your rent or lease, don't be surprised when the landlord evicts you. And yet some people are surprised. You know, they go for weeks and months without paying their rent, and when they get an eviction, they're still surprised. Jesus said that the landlord would come and kill those tenants and give his vineyard to others. When you hear the word others there, think of this image. That there are some of us who are in church who are exposed to all of the teachings of Christ. We believe it. We hear it. We know it by heart. We can recite it. And yet, perhaps because of our hardened heart, God brings in pagans, outcasts, the immoral, and the undeserving, and they take our place because of our rebelliousness. Think of that image for a while and let that sink in. That's what Jesus is saying here. Because of the fact that the Jews who rightfully were the ones that Jesus came to and they rejected him and kept on rejected him. He was going to offer his vineyard to pagans and outcasts and immor the immoral and the undeserving. He would break off the vine's branches and graft in other branches to fill their place. That's what Jesus is saying here. Let's turn to Romans chapter 11, verses 17 through 22, because the Apostle Paul brings this very clearly to our attention. Speaking um, to the Jews who really belonged in God's vineyard, he says this, but if some of the branches were broken off, and you Gentiles, although you were a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now shear in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, meaning the Jews, neither will he spare you, you Gentiles who have been grafted in. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. 
Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Now, the point in this passage is very clear. Reject God, and you will experience the severity of God's judgment. Now, these Jewish tenants, when they heard that, they became offended by that. And so their response to Jesus is, surely this will never happen. This can't happen, because we are Abraham's sons. We are, we are the rightful heirs, they're saying. And yet, this is exactly, exactly what happened. Because, you see, they would go on to crucify the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The stone that the builders rejected would become the cornerstone. Jesus was this cornerstone. They had rejected him. But I want to say this morning that even though Jesus might be rejected, he is still the cornerstone. Your rejection doesn't do anything at all to the fact that he is the cornerstone. So let's hear the punchline this morning. Punchline of Jesus' story. He says, be careful how you respond to this stone. Be careful. Because if you fall on it, it will break you to pieces. But if it falls on you, you will be crushed. In other words, either way, you're getting it. If you fall on it, it, it breaks you to pieces. If it falls on you, it crushes you. In other words, you can't oppose God's stone and not be crushed by it. There is a Jewish proverb that has a similar thrust. It goes like this, and I quote, If the stone falls on the pot, alas for the pot. If the pot falls on the stone, alas for the pot. Either way. So you can never destroy the stone, but the stone can crush you. So we need to be careful how we respond to the stone. Here's the bottom line of our message this morning. Rejecting the cornerstone doesn't mean that you destroy him. Can I say that again? Just in the event that there's anyone here this morning or anyone listening to me online wants to conclude that they will reject the stone, by rejecting him, you don't destroy him. He continues to exist. Here are three takeaways from this message this morning. Fall on the stone rather than be crushed by it. Fall on the stone rather than be crushed by it. Now when we talk about falling here in this context, we're talking about humbling yourself before the stone, Jesus Christ. We're talking about humbling yourself to repent. To repent means to make a complete 180. I told Jeremiah this as we were in baptism class this morning. That's what repentance means. If you're going in one direction and that direction will take you to ruin or to destruction, then you must turn around and go in the opposite direction. That is repentance. In other words, repentance is not just saying, God, I'm sorry, and then you go right back to doing what you were doing before. It is turning away from it. When you do that, God shows you mercy, kindness. 
He forgives your sin and he makes you righteous. He declares you to be innocent. Now to reject God means that you will be crushed by the severity of God's judgment. I want to ask you this morning, which do you prefer, the severity of God's judgment or the kindness of his mercy? I'm not going to be like some preachers that guilt you into feeling afraid of judgment and then get you to make a response based on that. That's not my objective this morning. My objective is to put two options before you and to say, which one will you choose? And then my job is to plead with you to choose God's mercy. God's mercy. Secondly, I'm going to challenge you this morning to make the cornerstone the object of your faith. As we said earlier, Jesus, the Son of God, is a cornerstone of our faith. And so it is not Jesus and something else. And, you, and some people tend to want to add something on to Jesus. So it's not Jesus alone for them. It is Jesus and something else. Like maybe Jesus and religion. Or maybe it's Jesus and good works or charitable contributions. It is Jesus alone. Jesus alone. So I want to ask you a question this morning. Are you building on this, on, on this cornerstone that is Jesus Christ? By attending to those things that strengthen your faith? Or are you investing in things that will diminish your faith? There's a choice. I can invest, th invest in things that will help to build me up spiritually and to increase my faith in the cornerstone. Or I can waste my time investing in other things that are going to diminish my faith. The choice is mine, as it is yours. Make Jesus the cornerstone of your faith. Here's the third and final application point this morning. Produce sweet rather than sour grapes. As you heard from the story, Jesus came to, uh, or sent um, messengers back to the tenants, expecting to receive some grapes from the vineyard. And instead of receiving sweet grapes, they received sour grapes. So let me ask you this morning, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, what kind of fruit is your life producing? When Jesus looks at you, expecting to see the fruit of righteousness and the fruit of the Spirit emanating from your life, what is he seeing? Are you producing sweet, group, sweet grapes of God-centered obedience? Or are you producing the sour grapes of me-centered disobedience? As Jesus looks at your life, is he seeing the fruit of the Spirit coming from it daily? And I'm sure you can recite the fruit with me. Can you, can you join me in, in reciting? There are nine. There's a, there's a nine-fold fruit. How many of you can say them accurately? Love, okay, I'm going to set, let Christina do it. <laughs> there it is, all right? And so we know, all of us do, that it is easier to recite them than to actually produce them. These are, no wonder they're called fruit of the Spirit, because we can't produce them in, on our own. It is the Spirit of God that produces them in us as we submit to him. 
So may Jesus find from my life this week and yours these ninefold fruit of the Spirit which have just been called out for us. Let us pray together. God, we thank you for the presentation of your gospel today, reminding us of what happened during Holy Week over 2,000 years ago. God, we know that people rejected you then, but we're so glad that others received you as well. And God, there continues to be this clear choice between salvation and condemnation. And God, I pray this morning that if there's somebody here today who does not know Jesus, if there's somebody here who continues to reject Jesus, if there's somebody online listening this morning who knows in their heart that they need to make that choice. Lord, help them to choose Jesus. There's somebody here this morning, help them to choose Jesus. And Father, for those of us who have already chosen you, we pray that you'd help us to grow stronger in our faith, that we'd always keep Jesus at the center of our lives, and that we'd be allowing the Holy Spirit to produce in us the behaviors and the fruit that are pleasing to the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray.